Hello and welcome to a new podcast from the London Library, in which interesting people tell us about the books that have shaped their lives. I'm Philip Marshall, Director of the London Library, and today's guest is Jarvis Cocker, musician and broadcaster. He'll be known to all of you as the songwriter and frontman of the pop band Pulp, which was so very famous in the 90s and continuing to record as a solo artist ever since then. Jarvis, it's a huge pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. Yeah. Hi. This isn't your first time to the library. You've been here before and you've been looked around a few times. What What do you think of the place? Yeah, I, I had a kind of lightning tour um, maybe a, a year and a half ago. Uh, I was doing a piece for a publication called The Happy Reader and uh, talking about books and, and looking at books. And then the photo session was done here. So, I, I uh, yeah, I was very impressed by the uh, atmosphere of the place. I guess you probably get that a lot. You know, it's... Uh, it's how you kind of imagine libraries in your mind. But often when you go into a library now, it seems to be more like an IT centre. There's a lot of computers. And also they're very brightly lit. And I like what I liked about here was uh, it, you can just kind of wander through these uh, canyons with books on either side of you and just see what um, leaps out of the the shadows to... Uh, to uh, catch your interest and I think that's one of the magic things about libraries you know what might you discover in that space oh absolutely I'm, I'm so glad um, you found that about this place people do say it's a, a great source of inspiration and discovery um, here particularly because so many of the books are on open access shelves so mm. you never quite know as you say what's going to leap out of the yeah I, I like that and and so it's 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 an inspiring place to look at but also very inspiring because of all the potential discoveries that are there mm. on the shelves. Wonderful. And you obviously uh, enjoy reading and discovery through books, and you've pro provided us with a, a really interesting book list to talk through today. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to going through those with you. Have books always played a, a big part in your life? Yeah, yeah, they have. Um, I th the brief, as I understood it for this uh, podcast, was to come up with five books that I felt had somehow altered my life or Absolutely. had some effect on it at least. And so that's what I did try to do. I mean, it's hard to whittle it down to a, a list of, of only five books, but um, yeah. And I thought we could go through kind of chronologically. Mm. Uh, so I'm starting off with Grimm's Household Tales because, you know, we all, that's probably our first um encounter with with stories is is maybe getting read stories as you're a kid and I've always been interested in that you know where these stories come from and and the kind of um you know there are tropes in those stories that just seem to to be universal like things always come in threes you have three wishes yes. there are three bears usually people have three goes at something before they get it right yes, you know yes. so there's all this stuff that I think is um, giving you some kind of window into archetypal things about storytelling, about um, how humans have entertained each other. And what I like about the Grimm's stories in particular is that, uh, you know, I do like Hans Christian Andersen's stories, but he, they are his imagination. He's made them up. But the idea of the Grimm's stories is that they went out and discovered, you know, found these stories out in the wild, you know, whilst they still existed, kind of harvesting some kind of oral tradition that was still there. And 
to me, that's amazing, you know, that, that you can't say who wrote those stories. Uh, they're kind of part of a common heritage or something. We have a copy actually here on, on the table we've plucked off the shelves, which is mm. from 1884. Um, so the Grimms were harvesting those stories earlier on in the 19th century. And I think this is one of the earlier English translations, it's certainly considered by the editors to have captured the entirety of what the Grimms were trying to do, which is, which mm. they think was the first attempt to do that. I'll pass that to you while I'm Thank also you. getting out some illustrations from the Mervyn Peak illustrated mm. copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales. And we don't have a copy of that, but we do have, because of our art collection here, a number of books on Mervyn Peak showing his drawings. And in, in this one, we do have some of the plates from those, some of the oh, illustrations yes, yeah. from that, that yeah, So I, I um, came across the edition of the Grimm's uh, Tales illustrated by Mervyn Peake. I, I found that book at a jumble sale in Sheffield. Oh. And, uh, and I just, uh, like, the, the illustration we're looking at now is one of my favourites, actually. The mouse, the bird and the sausage. <laughs> yes. Do you know that one? I don't know that no, one, No, that's actually. a really good story, yeah. that, yeah. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it, but it doesn't turn out well for, for any of them. Oh, oh any I, of them. I, I was assuming the sausage was going to have a problem. No, but... sausage, well, the thing is that uh, it's a cautionary tale because the, the mouse, the bird and the sausage are kind of living uh, quite a good existence. They, each has got its own job within the relationship and, it, and the relationship works. But, of course, like any relationship, people get bored and think, oh, why are they getting all the fun of doing that? Uh, uh, why can't I do something different? So they all swap jobs, and it's a disaster. <laughs> anyway, I'm not. I won't give details, but it's a, it's a a great story. I think I actually read that story. I used to do a radio show on on BBC Six Music, and occasionally I would read stories and stuff. And I think I read that story yeah. on, on the air once. Oh well, it, yeah. well, it's lucky that it fell open on that particular yeah. page. There's about six in here, and there. Um, they're really evocative. He was he was obviously a wonderful artist. And yeah, for me, fantastic. that one really says Grimm's. Mm. That's um uh that is called Our Lady's Child. That's an image of a of a small girl in a forest and all the trees yeah. sort of yeah. reaching over her. Very Grimm's tales. Too. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, that, that also that when you go back to uh, uh I mean I have I I don't know where, how much this was adapted. Oh look, it, it fell open at that very story as well. I don't know how much this was adapted before the Mervyn Peak version. But when you read early uh, translations of, of these stories, they're not um, twee at all. You know, I mean, nowadays when you say it's like a fairy story, that's like, you know, everything turned out right and we were all living in My Little Pony Land or whatever. But um, these stories aren't like that. You know, as I said, things turn out really badly a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not all nicey-nicey and, and the princess marries the and they all live happily ever after. It, occasionally that happens, but there's a lot of grim, um, forgive the pun, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, events before that can happen. Absolutely. And a discovery that I made, because I didn't know much about Mervyn Peake at all um, before you mentioned the book, mm. uh, is another book of his drawings here, where he's, he's given a, an introduction to a book of drawings. And he talks in a re really interesting way, I think, about... Um, about why drawings are important, and um, I won't be able to do this justice, but he introduces it with a poem 
The paper is breathless under the hand, and the pencil is poised like a warlock's wand. But the white page darkens and is blown on the wind, and the voice of a pencil, who can find? Mm. Some of his rhymes aren't so good there, are they? <laughs> well, I'm but, sure know, that's the way I read but, it. <laughs> you know, he was a writer and he was an artist. You can't always be a, a words, you know, a, a rapper as well. Um, <laughs> so, your second choice, Richard Brautigan's Sombrero yeah. Fallout. Yeah. It's passing you um, the library's copy, which is a, a, a first edition, actually, first UK edition, mm. um, and has on the cover beautiful image, actually, of a Japanese lady with very long black hair. Yeah. Well, that's features the, in the book. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So tell us about this book and how you came across it. Well, again, most of my reading career is based on things that I've found in secondhand shops or stuff like that. Because at the time that I discovered Richard Brautigan, he, he his writing had fallen out of favour for quite a long time. He'd come to prominence in the kind of late 60s and, and, and was read by the kind of... He was in connected with the counterculture and all that kind of stuff. Um, and with, and I suppose yeah, his first book that was published was Trout Fishing in America, and that was like a bit of a phenomenon. Uh, and then his, his star kind of started to wane. And I think this book's from the mid to late 70s. Let's yeah, 77, I think. Yeah, yeah. so it, things are starting to go dark mm. <laughs> i've only found this stuff out in in retrospect i like all of his books I, because he was associated with the hippie movement i i resisted him for a long time i thought because the times when i tried to read stuff like that it just seemed to be you know kind of wacky and silly people who smoked too much and shouldn't have tried to write whilst <laughs> high um and I'd seen pictures of him and he had that kind of hippie look. And I thought, I'm not really that interested in, in that kind of thing. But uh, when I actually tried to overcome those prejudices and, and, you know, often in the times when I discovered this book, this was uh, not long after I'd first moved to London. And I was living a, a fairly meagre existence. So I, I kind of read quite a lot because reading is really cheap, you know. Uh, when you're sitting there reading, you're not really consuming anything. Um, you're occupied. You not you don't have to spend money, and you can still find books pretty cheaply. So the um, anybody wanting to save money, yeah, go out and get a reading habit. Um, <laughs> so I started reading his books and realised that they were much more interesting than, than I'd uh, given them credit for. The the they're really well structured. They're not uh, kind of hippy dippy at all. But there's one book that could be considered that called "In Watermelon Sugar," which is imagining some kind of utopian community. That one's not so amazing. But the reason that I kind of latched onto this one is that it's very funny, but also it's really sad as well. And it's mainly about, I imagine, this Japanese woman who's on the cover, who because the story is about a guy who has broken up with his lover and he becomes obsessed at the start of the book. He's lonely and he gets this idea in his mind that he's going to look through the apartment that they used to live in together and see if he can find one of her hairs. <laughs> he thinks, well, she she lived here all this time. She brushed her hair a lot. There must be a hair somewhere and that gives me something to hold on to. He's desperate. I mean, he's not, yeah. not, not clutching at straws. He's clutching at hairs. Um <laughs> 
So, uh, and then the book kind of goes on from there, you know, um, it's really his imagination torturing him, you know, and, and I find it interesting because I also should mention that he's trying to write a book at the same time as well. And, the, and because of this distraction, he kind of fails and he throws the book in the bin and then the book starts to write itself in the, in the bin. <laughs> So even though it's a very slim book, it's only um, 180 pages or whatever, and some, you know, like this page I'm looking at here, page 183, has really only got about 10 lines of text on it. He has very short chapters and stuff like that. But there's a lot in it. There's, it, there's different layers, and, um, and I think it's about uh, knowing now what I do about him, the fact that his career kind of went down and, and, and he... It's it's a little bit about him feeling condemned to do something that's not really going to do him that much good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the thing that any writer or any creative person needs an imagination, otherwise they're not going to come up with anything. But sometimes that imagination can turn on you. And, um, you know, if you've created a, a way of thinking that that works like that, it can it can bite you. Um, and it's starting to bite him in this book, and it's uh, it's so therefore it's. Um, I chose this book when I was um, invited on Desert Island Discs, and um, I, I probably wouldn't change my choice, even though it's a slim book, because yeah. as I say, it's it's got a lot going on in it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting book, and I did wonder as you were saying about your about the creative process, whether you had um whether you were speaking from experience you, you, you smiled sort of wryly when you were describing you know that state of mind he was in when he's trying to create something and getting distracted and i just wondered whether you'd experienced a similar sort of uh moment in your creative process well, not a moment it's like an <laughs> ongoing experience yeah. yeah i mean i always if there's a distraction i'll take it rather than knuckling down to what i'm supposed to actually be doing yeah for, for me when i read it when, when he sort of focuses on the detail and the quite sad detail of the writer, um, as you say, looking for the hair or wondering whether he's going to have a tuna sandwich for lunch and then realising he's not because he doesn't, he's scared of eating too much tuna and he's wondering about eggs. And there's all this sort of day-to-day -day thing going on in his world with this sort of sadness of having lost his lover. But um, in the in the waste bin the story that he started about the sombrero falling out of the sky, taking shape becomes basically a full scale war, <laughs> a riot going on in, 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 uh, in this sort of small town, America, um, uh, which is completely sort of surreal and um, hilarious. But of course, many people are basically running around kidding themselves, but the way he tells it is so funny. And so this this big sort of comedic adventure going on in the waste bin and then his, his life that's so, small and painted in such fine detail. Yeah, and also the fact that the story in the waste bin is right in itself without him spoiling it. You know, it's, it's almost like he's getting a downer on himself that uh, this is the kind of book that maybe he should be writing to make money because it's turning into a blockbuster because, like you say, there's war and there's blood and explosions, which is kind of what people want from books sometimes, <laughs> you know. And uh, and it's like if he got involved, it would he, he'd cut all that bit out. So it's so it's 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 uh, yeah it's it's a strange. Book. Is there is there a link to your music there in in terms of what's popular and what um, 
what you might want to pursue as an artist? Is there ever that tension, do you feel? Um, well, I think there is a thing that, you know, sometimes you have to get out of your own way. I, I really do feel that, you know, sometimes um, being too self-conscious when you're trying to create something will just kill it stone dead before it gets a chance to get going. Um, and, yeah, so you have to evolve ways of, of uh, you know, tricking yourself. And, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've just been through a process with it now. I, I haven't made a record for a long time, and uh, I got a band together, and what we did was uh, kind of write the songs as we were performing. So we, we toured small places, and we had these songs which were kind of formed but not finished. And then we actually recorded the basic bits in concert as well. So that was a way of just not getting too self-conscious about it. it. It formed itself in front of an audience and then it was recorded kind of in front of an audience. So I had less chance to mess it up by thinking about it too much. Usually when things work out well, I th think a lot of writers and people say, you know, when, when it's going well, you feel like you're not really in control of it. It's almost like uh, it, it's traveling through you in some way. And, and that's when it's really exciting, when you don't have to intervene too much. So let's talk about your, your next book, which is also an American author. Oh, yeah. Carson McCullers, um, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, but from a bit earlier than the Vortigan. Carson McCullers, I wanted to like her because I'd seen photographs of her. She looked really interesting. She looks about 16 or something. And, and uh, I think she published her first book when she was really young. I think it was this one, and I think she was about 23. Yeah, but she looks mm. like this kind of strange kid. And she's got a very fragile kind of look, so I just thought, well, she looks very interesting. But I think the first book I attempted to read was uh, the Ballad of the Sad Cafe, because I thought that's a good title. In fact, generally speaking, her titles are amazing. Mm. Uh, not just the books, but her short stories have all got great titles as well. So there was a, so I thought, oh, that's good, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. But I tried to read that one and it was a bit too much for me at the time. I don't know whether I'd been, a, there used to be a band called Sad Cafe, oh. but I didn't really like them that much. But <laughs> maybe that had uh, in, piqued my interest. But, yeah. Um, and then I think it was like in the early 2000s, um, I think I was staying at someone's house and they had a collection of uh, short stories. And I started to read that one night and thought, oh, these are amazing. So I, I, I continued with that and then uh, read The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And uh, I'll try and find a section in here because I've actually used this... Um, there's a, a record that I did in 2006, imaginatively called Jarvis. <laughs> um, and it was a, my first solo record. And there's a song on there called Big Julie. And it starts off with an, an audio recording of Carson McCullough's reading a little bit from this book. The main female character in this book is called Mick Kelly. And she's like, a, I think, like a 14-year-old girl. And she kind of wanders around the, the town that she's been brought up in and she really wants to leave and wants to, she's got, a, we were talking about imagination earlier, you know, she's got this idea of what life could be like outside of this place. 
Um, and she often will walk around and then, and then there's, she likes to sit under the window of a, of a neighbour who, who has a radio on and she likes to sit there and sometimes listen to what music is playing. And, and, and she finds that the music helps her to imagine these places she might go and visit mm. to. And there's a description in here of her hearing, I think it's Beethoven, I think it's the Emperor Concerto or something. It, anyway, she hears that and um, she really gets transported and she imagines all these things whilst the music's playing. And I really latched onto that bit of writing because I think it's very difficult to write about music because music, um, that's kind of what's so great about it, that it it completely circumvents the need for language. You know, it just goes straight in and gets you and, and uh, seems to touch you in a very deep way um, beyond language, you know. So, yeah, it's very hard to write about music convincingly or, or to write about the, the feeling of listening to music. And this passage, I think, is amazing. It does actually manage to do that. If I can find it, I might read a little bit. Here we are. Yeah, I've got it there. Okay, I'll, I'll read from this. So you've got to manage. So she's been walking around at night and now she's uh, hiding underneath a neighbour's window and listening to the radio. One programme came on after another and all of them were punk. Now, I don't think that means punk music, just like not very good. She didn't especially care. She smoked and picked a little bunch of grass blades. After a while, a new announcer started talking. He mentioned Beethoven. She'd read in the library about that musician. His name was pronounced with an A and spelt with a double E. He was a German fellow, like Mozart. When he was living, he spoke in a foreign language and lived in a foreign place, like she wanted to do. The announcer said they were going to play his third symphony. She only halfway listened because she wanted to walk some more and she didn't care much what they played. Then the music started. Mick raised her head and her fist went up to her throat. How did it come? For a minute, the opening balanced from one side to the other like a walk or march, like God strutting in the night. The outside of her was suddenly frozen and only that first part of the music was hot inside her heart. She could not even hear what sounded after, but she sat there waiting and frozen, with her fist tight. After a while, the music came again, harder and loud. It didn't have anything to do with God. This was her, Mick Kelly, walking in the daytime and by herself at night, in the hot sun and in the dark, with all the plans and feelings. This music was her, the real, plain her. It's a wonderfully written book, obviously. I remember it being a book that was sort of filled with humanity, but also struggles, and there's love, but there's a lot of sadness and not, not very much happiness in it, and all of those things sort of mixed together almost in a sort of search for meaning. Yeah, I'm trying to cast me mind, because that mix of character that sticks out for me, I know that they, the, the link in the book is that they all go and see this... Uh, Blind guy, right? Or is he? He's he's mute. Yeah, there we yeah, are. He's deaf. Blind. He's deaf. He's deaf, and he doesn't talk. So, yeah. yeah, and they all go and talk to him, but obviously he can't hear him. 
So he's the kind of linchpin of the book. And it, I suppose, you know, I mean, that's, I think, why it's an amazing book to have written at that age, mm. you know, like 22, 23, because it's, it's really about, like, how people, um, you know, they can tell the story to this guy. But probably the fact that they know he can't hear is why they can pour out their feelings to him, you know. He reads their lips and I think they assume he understands actually more than he does. Mm. Uh, and so they sort of almost treat him as a, uh, it's a bit like confessional, but also a bit like a, a guide. And if I tell tell him all my troubles and he'll understand, yeah. even if he doesn't tell me what to do, he'll understand. Yeah, well, we're getting back to imagination again there, aren't we? You know, they're kind of projecting this this idea onto him and he can't really, the fact that he can't say anything to disagree and contradict means they can imagine him to be anything they want. You know, he can be the, like you say, like a confessor or a, or a sage or a guru or whatever, and he's not going to spoil it by saying something to contradict them. The two being American writers, is there a particular affinity that you have, Portigan and, and, uh, and McCullough, is there a particular affinity with America that um, we're seeing here? No, it's, it's, it's interesting. I didn't really think of that. Uh, they were just books that, affected me you know you know i guess 20th century american writing is they were grappling with the modern world you know and and being born when i was that's what i wanted some clues as as to how to deal with you know so i wasn't reading them as like handbooks on how to make your way through the 20th century but uh it was nice to get some tips (laughs) yeah absolutely actually that quite neatly perhaps takes us on to Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, which yeah. I haven't started reading yet. Oh, I, I've got I, well, I better not <laughs> spoil it for you. <laughs> well, I'm slightly uh, tentative about this because... Yeah, you, it, you've got good uh, reason to be. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's probably not going to be all that optimistic, is it? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this we're coming up almost to date now. This was uh, maybe four or five maybe like four years ago, I guess. It's not been out that long. Mm. It was Again, it was to do with my radio show. One of the great things about that was um, occasionally I would interview writers or people, yeah. And I was asked if I wanted to interview Yuval Noah Harari um, about Homer Days when it was coming out. So I got like a, an advanced copy before it had been published. And, uh, and I took it away on the holiday, you know, on the summer holiday. And it, it isn't beach reading, I tell you. Um, so uh, it actually really frightened me. I don't want to put you off no, reading no, it, no, you know, no, this I is the thing. But, but um, yeah, because, you know, if you say we're talking about these, the books so far, you, you get an, a part of reading is to give you some insight into humanity and what humans are into and how they work and what they think and stuff like that. And then along comes this book, which basically says, well, all that's superfluous because humans are going to change really soon. And all that stuff that you think is useful for predicting human (laughs) behaviour and human nature, it's going to become irrelevant. So it was a kind of woo. Uh, It's like a pull the carpet out from under you kind of book. And uh, probably really spoilt my summer holiday. Um, I think my girlfriend was wondering why I was in this kind of strange, haunted uh, state. Yes. But it really affected me. Um, yeah. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I do think that's um, the thing with any book. How 
affected you are by it is to do with your situation or your um, receptiveness at any given time. Like I was saying, when I first tried to read Carson because I didn't really like it, and then, like, say, 15, 20 years later, I was ready for it. With with this book, I don't know, maybe I was having some kind of existential crisis and somehow this came in and exploited that of like, well, you think you're in some kind of weird situation. We're all messed up. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, I was fortunate enough to interview the author when he came into uh, the BBC. Very affable guy, very gentle kind of man, fan of Duran Duran. Because I always, you know, if anybody's on the show, I would always ask them what music they would like played. And he was banging to his Duran Duran, which, I, which I'd not picked up from reading Homer Deus with its, you know, slightly apocalyptic overtones. Planet Earth, but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, as I say, I, I'm conscious now that I don't want to spoil it. This, we should point out, is, is um, you know, is, is non-fiction. It's an imagining of what may be coming based on what is here. He, he's famously wrote Sapiens, which was the history of how we got to this point in history. And now he's kind of projecting where we may be going in the near, reasonably near future. A point he makes in the book, which I think is a very valid point, is saying, well, I'm, I'm going to write these projections down. This is what could happen. A lot of it isn't so cheery. But um, the, the thing is that, by giving voice to it and by writing about it, that means you could change it, you know, there, there could be a choice to change it. it. So I think it's not actually that pessimistic a book, but it's just saying this is where we could go. Obviously, there's a choice to be made if we want to go that to, mm -hmm. to there. But, you know, I think that's the point. You know, usually things that uh, disasters or, or cataclysmic things come out of nowhere. So at least forewarned is forearmed, and Indeed. there can be some kind of human resistance. Although I kind of tried out a few human resistance things on him when he was in on the show, and he was poo-pooing him quite a lot. So oh, no. I don't know. I, I I mean I hope there is hope, um, and I I I dare say I will read it. Yeah, um, I, I don't know whether it's so much like a, a hopeless thing, but just more, I suppose that that. The things that you take as permanent things, permanent things about the way that humans are and the way that life is, you say that, that some of those fundamental things will change. Uh, you know, one thing that, that, okay, I'm not going to spoil it too much for you, but, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, advances in medicine and stuff like that, so maybe people might not die. Now, if people stop dying, that's a big change um, to human existence in it you know i mean that's kind of what's most of the books in this library i guess were probably in some way spurred on by the fact that people thought okay i've only got a certain amount of time so i better get down to some work and get it down on the page so that something of me exists mm. in the future now if, if, if somebody said okay just give me uh, a billion pounds and you can live forever uh, that removes that spur and that would be a fundamental change in you might not ever actually do anything with our exactly. They probably existence. wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that. It's just like you know, uh, you know, when you read something and you start to feel a bit dizzy. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that. So you know, the brief for this 
yeah. discussion was books that have changed me in some way. And that, that really did haunt me for quite a long time. Um, I've been talking to my therapist about it since <laughs> and I hopefully I'm getting over it now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, that is the brief um, for, for the podcast. And it, I, I often reflect on that myself and think, what five books would you choose that had the impact on your life rather than a list of five great books that you think are wonderful and were great works of art and so on and so forth. And it is, it is quite a different process, I think. So, which hopefully is yeah, quite revealing. Sometimes, well, and also you don't always know that at the time, you know, that something might just stick with you. You'll find yourself thinking about it five years later, you know, mm, mm. Uh, you, you can't really predict which things are going to do that. Yeah, sure. So why don't you tell us uh, about your next choice? Yeah, well, well, I'll tell you the story of how I came about reading uh, the work of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, which is, uh, like a lot of people, maybe I was seeking light relief after Homo Deus, but uh, like a lot of people, I watched the Netflix series uh, Wild Wild Country, which is like a documentary about the Rajneesh Foundation, which mm-hmm. was, um, well, some people characterised it as a religious cult. The The... The film concentrates on, um, well, let's go back to the beginning. The, the Bhagwan um, had an ashram in India and, and gave lots of talks. People went there uh, to meditate. He had a, a particular special form of meditation. It became very popular and, and gained an international following. And the program followed one um, exploit that they did that they moved to a remote part of Oregon they bought an old ranch and they actually built a city there uh, and um, the film series is about you know what happened next because it the, the city was next to a very small uh, town I can't remember the name of the town now but it only had a population of about 200 people they weren't so keen on these people that suddenly appeared because also it, it was quite a visual thing because all the followers of the Bhagwan had to dress in shades of maroon, purple, or pink. Oh, really? So suddenly all these purple, plum-coloured people <laughs> kind of uh, appeared in this kind of weird, you know, remote part of America. Um, I was hooked from that point because I love a bit of maroon and purple. So <laughs> I, was in, I was thinking, this, this is the religion for me, hands down. Don't need to know anything more about it as long as you get to wear that colour palette. I would recommend anyone to, to watch that series. It's very interesting. Um, but I got to the end of that series, and the one thing I thought that it didn't really explain was how come the Bhagwan had become so popular in the first place. It didn't really go into him and his teachings in very much detail, which I can understand because at the point that they're talking about, he'd basically gone into a vow of silence. So all he used to do was turn up and kind of smile and ride around in, I think it had something like 105 Rolls Royces or something like that. Anyway, so, but I just wanted to know what was the, uh, what was behind it. So I went to, there's a bookshop in Paris. You know, I live some of the time in Paris and, uh, it was my favourite bookshop there, second-hand books, and I had a route round. They've got quite a big kind of, uh, you know, alternative religion section or whatever, and I found a book by him. The book that I found is called The Book of the Secrets. Well, you know, it's hard <laughs> to resist a book that's got a title like that. 
Absolutely. It's like, okay, yeah, I want to know the secrets. It's good that, you know, there's not just one secret as well. It's the secrets. So I thought, great. There's five volumes, I yeah. think. <laughs> Wearing the purple and finding the secrets, great. So it, this was all just kind of idle curiosity kind of thing. So I bought the book and started reading it. And basically it's him, his particular uh, thing it is Tantra, which, you know, which we know in the West mainly, unfortunately, because of Sting. Yes, and his, indeed. And his tantric sex exploits. Um, <laughs> so yes, we have heard about that, yes. But Tantra is, has a lot more than than long sex going for it. Um, it. There are basically 112 techniques to uh, uh, gain enlightenment. And the idea is not that you are going to learn all 112, but you, somewhere in that 112, you might find something that will work for you. Um, so I guess I, you know, I'd started reading out of curiosity, but what I found very interesting was these, the, the books are basically transcriptions of lectures that he gave at the ashram that I mentioned back in the early 70s. Right. The first thing is he's got a, a great vocabulary and the way that he speaks is very engaging. You can find audio recordings, there's lots of them on the YouTube and stuff like that. So it's very engaging to read, it's, it's very easy to read. And, um, and the format of the book, which goes all the way through the five volumes, is he'll discuss, say, three of these 112 techniques in detail, and then the next chapter are people's questions on that, and then he moves on to the next ones. And... and um, I was kind of surprised that I just really got hooked on reading them I, and I've read all five volumes. I only finished about uh, two or three months ago. Did, did you find within the 112 the, the, yeah, the route I'm, to your I'm, personal I'm, enlightenment? I don't know. That's, that's a life project, isn't it? But I, I, I've tried meditation and stuff like that, you know. Um, it's an interesting... Concept, you know, um, all meditation techniques and stuff like that is is about uh, stilling the mind, you know. Mm. Uh, the and I think that's something that's uh, become people, you know. I think interest in that has grown a lot over the last decade or so. I guess I because of our modern life, where we're living inside our heads more than we ever have done, and there's so much outside stimulation. And then it's all swimming around inside your consciousness. And you kind of sometimes think, actually, could I just have a bit of peace now and again? I'd like things to be still. I wouldn't like to be thinking about 20 things at once. And so um, I guess the idea behind uh, meditation and stuff like that is to kind of still the voices to a certain extent so that useful ideas are allowed to come to the surface yes. rather than all the kind of background noise of a of a 21st century civilization. Yes, and I, and some of his teachings, some of his, I think he jokingly described 10 commandments, not really wanting to give to commandments. Several of them are like mindfulness, mm. um, uh, live wakefully, um, do not search, that which is, is stop and see. 
it's 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 very similar to what we're all doing now with our mindfulness training and yeah things. well it's an interesting thing you know as i said when you've got so much outside stimulation then the idea that actually you can cut all that out and some of the answers or may i guess he would probably say the the main answers are things that are already inside you and so it's more a case of turning inward to discover that and it goes back to homo deus actually because uh, during our conversation, when I was speaking to Yuval Noah Harari, he goes on a very intensive, I forget the name of the, the meditation that he does, but he goes on this very intensive meditation retreat for like two or three months of a, every year. And he said that that was very, it was indispensable for him to do that, to facilitate his writing, that he needs that kind of ability to focus and to, bring things to a, a state of stillness to then be able to write. So um, there's got to be something in it. Yeah, absolutely. And and to bring it back to the, the library, uh, a lot of people who write here um, talk about the, the peace and quiet. They sometimes use the word sanctuary or haven, um, the stillness, and to become very productive within mm. this building. So um, uh, we see that going on here all the time and and this search um for the sort of the human condition and understanding the human condition is is something that also um, reminds me of a of a quote that em forster who was very involved with the library uh, in 1941 he wrote um an essay about the library it was our centenary mm. and he wrote an essay about the library and there was a section within it where he says um if you allow me to read it it caters neither for the goose nor the rat but for creatures who are trying to be human. The desire to know more, the desire to feel more, and accompanying these but not strangling them, the desire to help others. Here, briefly, is the human aim, and the library exists to further it. Mm. Well, that's a very nice idea of a library, yeah. It is, isn't it? And I think that that because particularly this is an arts and humanities library, the, the search for understanding the human condition... Um, goes on here all the time um so i think it's in it's really interesting that the books that you've chosen all uh have a place in that journey of discovery into the human condition and and i'm it seems that something that fascinates you um and i presume will continue to fascinate you yeah i mean i've always been fascinated i just want to know <laughs> um how people work you know and and that's that's an endless source of fascination, and that's what I've tried to do in in the work that I do, you know, songs and stuff, mm. is, is to try and write about what people actually, what they fill their lives with, you know. Um, I, well, find really it, I find it fascinating, and I find it fascinating what people can make as well, and that's something that you find if you walk around a place like this, that... We're all dealing with the same world, you know, we're all born into the same reality, at different levels of it or whatever, but the physical reality of the world is the same for all of us, but we all see it in a different way and we all react to it in a different way and, and everybody produces a different version of it and that the fact that there's so many versions, you know, uh, and yet, you know, through reading or through music or whatever, you can for a moment, see the world through somebody else's eyes. And I do think, actually, that reading is a, is a thing that 
facilitates that most intensely that for that moment that you're reading a book you're you are inhabiting somebody else's consciousness it's not just what they're writing about but the way that they construct sentences uh, the, the the vocabulary that they use you you're inside their head for that time and that's amazing you know i mean that's like a magic trick uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a great thing. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you ever so much, Jarvis. All right. I'll probably never leave this building ever again. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And to find out more about the London Library, please visit our website at londonlibrary.co.uk. Please check the links in the show notes and rate us and subscribe. 